we had a great time of worship today, didn't we? See, I'm trusting across all four campuses. When we sang that last song about when Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king, I'm looking forward to the day. I've seen a few more hands up, but I'm looking forward to the day when we fist punch the air and cheer and get as rowdy as we did on Thursday when the Bears beat the Packers over Jesus, okay? Can we do that sometime? Just go crazy. Yeah, what a day. What a day when our king comes to reign. What a day that's going to be. So let's pray. We're going to invite our king to teach us from his word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come before you as the one who will return and set up an eternal kingdom. And we're coming under the authority of your word right now. We ask you to turn the light on in darkened minds, open closed hearts, unplugged stopped ears. We want to hear from you. And then we want to do what you say. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, have you ever put together the, uh, the perfect, relaxing getaway, only to have your plans fall apart at the last minute? That ever happened to you? Hap happened to us recently. Uh, about eight months ago, I was looking ahead on my calendar to the fall, and I realized this fall was going to be crazy busy. I knew that in September and October, we would be putting together and uh, running this financial campaign, raising $11 million. There would be a whole lot of meetings and extra work associated with that. And then later on in December, I mean, December, we do all that Christmas stuff, uh, outreaches across four campuses, thousands of people coming, a bazillion Christmas Eve services later on in the month. So there, there was this little window in November, I realized I needed to set aside some time to chill. I needed to get away, needed to catch my breath. And so I, I put a getaway on the calendar eight months ago. And Sue and I, we've been to a retreat center in, in North Carolina before, so we made plans to go back there. The food is great. The hiking in the Blue Ridge Mountains is spectacular. Uh, the Biltmore Mansion is nearby, and they decorate it for the, for the holiday season. And uh, I was so proud of myself that I put this on the calendar eight months in advance because this is not like us. I mean, we, we just don't plan ahead when it comes to getting away. We fly by the seat of our pants. And so this time I was wise enough to plan for rest. I was ensuring that we would have rest. And we almost did. <laughs> but then shortly before we were supposed to leave, our fourth grandchild arrived on the scene. Winston Graham Ross came along. Yeah. Now, how, how many of you know that grandma ain't going nowhere when a new grandbaby has just been born. All right, so Sue said to me, she said, you know, honey, you really do need to chill. So you go to North Carolina, and I'll take care of things here, and I'll join you the last couple of days of the week. And so that's what we did. I actually hung out with Winston an extra day or so, and I left late. And, uh, but then it was one problem after another. My connecting flight was canceled, and then uh, mechanical difficulties. They weren't going to reschedule it for another five or six hours, so I rented a car, and I drove the rest of the way. And I, I did eat great meals and hike beautiful trails, but without Sue, just wasn't what I had envisioned it would be, which is a bone I'm going to pick with Winston Graham Ross when he gets old enough to understand the conversation. So let, let me ask you a question. Could you use some rest? 
Or, or let me put it another way, what is, what is robbing you of rest these days? Now, the rest buster in your life may not be a foiled getaway plan like it was for me. Maybe it's the recent loss of a job that is taxing you. Maybe it's the responsibility of caring for an aging parent or the energy-draining conflict in some important relationship. Maybe it's the extra demands of the holiday season or, or some chronic illness. Maybe it's the press of schoolwork or a baby that still isn't sleeping through the night. Rest. Elusive rest. How often do we detect in our lives an insatiable need for physically refreshing, soul-satisfying rest? And that's what I love about one of the images of Jesus in the New Testament book of Hebrews. He's pictured as the giver of rest. He is rest assured, which is what I'm titling this sermon, Rest Assured. We're in the third week of a seven-part series, a holiday series called Picture Perfect, Images of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So if you brought a Bible, which I hope you did, because I'm going to be asking you to mark it up as we go along today, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. There's an outline in your program that will help you follow along. Uh, Hebrews, as we've been telling you the last several weeks, is a New Testament letter, an epistle, and it was written to a group of people who needed some rest. Now, ironically, in their case, what was agitating their lives was, was their relationship with Jesus. Because at that time, in the Roman Empire, Christ followers were being persecuted. And so some of these Christ followers to whom the book is written, they, they came from a Jewish background, which is why it's called the book of Hebrews. They were thinking about reverting to their former religion because Judaism was an acceptable religion in the realm. But Christianity was persecuted. So the author of Hebrews wrote this letter to convince Jewish Christ followers to stay true to Jesus. Hebrews describes through a series of images the uniqueness, the supremacy of Jesus. In other words, you guys walk away from Jesus and this is what you're going to miss out on. So the image of Jesus that we're considering today in Hebrews 4 is, is rest. God, God has wired us for a special kind of rest. God promises to give us this rest, but this rest can only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, there are three aspects of God's rest that we're going to take a look at in Hebrews 4, verses 1 to, 1 to 11. But just a side note before I begin this text. As, as I was studying Hebrews 4 over the last uh, several weeks, I realized that, uh, that I come at a passage like this with a Western analytical, systematic, methodical mindset. But the writer of Hebrews is an ancient Middle Eastern Jew. He thinks an entirely different way. He kind of meanders around as he writes. You know, it, it reminded me as I studied the passage of a book I read uh, some years ago about the differences between men and women. According to the author of this book, men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. You ever, ever read that? Heard that? Okay, see, men like things laid out in neat little squares. Women, you talk to a woman, she could wander all over the place. Now, this may not be a universal truth. It's true in my marriage. I know that. You know, I, I come to, we're going to talk about this, Sue, and soon we're, how did we get over there? Well, the writer of Hebrews, he's kind of a spaghetti-type writer, okay? He wanders around a bit. So we're going to jump into this plate of Bible pasta and see what we could learn about three aspects of God's promised rest. Here, here's number one. 
God's rest is an already not yet rest. Now, what do I mean already not yet? This is an expression that theologians like to use. You know, there, there are certain blessings that God promises us in this life. They are already blessings. They're already available to us. However, many of these blessings, listen, many of these blessings we just get a taste of in this life. The full meal is in the life to come. So in another sense, these blessings are not yet fully ours. Following this? So we got already, not yet. God's promise rest is one of these already not yet blessings. Already, already this rest can be experienced by those who surrender their lives to Christ. We're going to be talking about that a little later. But not yet... Not yet do we get the ultimate rest that God has in store for us. So we're going to begin by talking about that ultimate rest, that not yet rest. And the writer of the book of Hebrews uses an Old Testament story to introduce us to this kind of rest, to the rest that God promises us in eternity. So let, let me sum up the Old Testament story for you before we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 4. God's Old Testament people, the Jews, they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years until God sends them a deliverer by the name of Moses. This is a participative service across four campuses. God sends them a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses not only leads them out of bondage in Egypt, he leads them to the promised land, the land of Canaan a land that is also known as the resting place. That's the nickname that Moses gives to the promised land in Deuteronomy 12, verse 9. He calls it the resting place. Now, why does Moses call the promised land the resting place? Well, because God had repeatedly promised his people that once they got there, they would experience rest like they'd never known it before. They would experience the rest of freedom from bondage. They would experience the rest of having all their needs met. They would experience the rest of being protected from external enemies. This place would be the resting place. And the promised land rest, the writer of Hebrews is about to tell us, was a foreshadowing of rest in God's eternal kingdom. It's an analogy. It points to God's eternal rest. The Bible says that at the end of time, God will create a new heaven and new earth. If you want a fuller description of that new heaven and new earth, go to the last book of your Bible, the last couple of chapters, Revelation 20 and 20, uh, 21 and 22, rather, and you could read about it. Now, the word rest is not mentioned in those closing chapters of the Bible, but they paint a picture of perfect rest. And please understand, as I'm talking about eternal rest, I, I am not talking about a uh, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, sipping an iced tea kind of rest. You know, the Bible never depicts the new heaven and new earth that way. That wouldn't be rest. That would be boredom. You know, Jesus told his followers a number of parables that illustrate that in his eternal kingdom, we will be given creative assignments. There'll be something to do. And so, so the future rest, the not yet kind of rest, is, is not an eternity of lackluster chilling. It's a rest that is characterized by freedom from pain and heartache and disease and death. Wouldn't you like some of that rest? 
It's a rest that's characterized by deliverance from the ravages of sin, sin in our own lives. Don't you look forward to a day when your own sin won't mess up your life so badly? It's a rest from conflict. It's a rest from evil. It's the the rest of enjoying exploring a new heaven and a new earth. How about that? You'll have all eternity. God will have created this new heaven and new earth, and you could go out exploring. It's the rest of being with Jesus up close and personal. It's the rest of being united with loved ones who belong to Jesus. Wow. How does a person get that not yet kind of rest? Well, that's what the author of Hebrews wants to tell us about in Hebrews chapter 4. In fact, he's going to warn us in the opening verses. He's going to warn us that if we're not careful, we can miss out. It's possible to miss out on God's promised eternal rest. Let me read the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 4 to you. Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. I'm going to stop right in the middle of verse 3. Who is the they that he keeps referring to in in verse 2? The people who failed to enter God's rest. Well, he's going back to that Old Testament promised land story. So I didn't tell you the whole story. Moses led God's people to the border of the promised land. But this isn't a happily ever after fairy tale. See, God instructs Moses at that point in time. He says, I want you to send 12 explorers, one guy from every tribe of Israel. They're to go into the promised land, scout it out, bring back a report. So these 12 dudes, they go into the promised land and they come back. And initially, the report is uniformly positive. The land is spectacular. It's amazing. It's incredibly fertile. It's fruitful. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful land of rolling hills and well-watered valleys. But, but then the reports begin to diverge. And 10 of the 12 say, however, however, we saw the people there and they're huge and they're fierce and their cities are protected by these formidable walls, these impregnable walls. And they said to Moses, let's get the heck out of here. It's the Nicodemus translation of the original Hebrew. Let's get the heck out of here. Uh, Meanwhile, two of the explorers, guys named Joshua and Caleb, they say, no, no, yeah, yeah, the people are huge. The cities are formidable. But God promised to give us this land. Let's go get it. Let's go get it. Now, unfortunately, the 10 with a negative report, they had better marketing skills. And so they convinced the rest of the people, no, let's pack up. Let's get out of here. In in fact, the people turned on Joshua and Caleb. They threatened to stone them. And this is when God stepped in and God said, okay, you don't want the promised land? You don't get the promised land. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to wander around in this desert for 40 years until every last adult who didn't want to go in dies off. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, this story is a warning for us. 
When it comes to God's eternal rest, when it comes to God's not yet rest, don't miss out on it like the Old Testament people who missed out on the promised land. You be sure to enter in. You, you be sure to make this rest your eternal residence. How, how do we do that? How do we make certain that we're going to enter into God's eternal rest in the life to come? We'll come back to that in just a moment. That's a very important question. But first, I want to address an objection that no doubt was percolating in the minds of the original readers of the epistle of Hebrews. Some of them were thinking, you know, the author of this book is blowing things way out of proportion. He's taking a simple Old Testament story about entering the promised land, and now, now he says it's an analogy of some future eternal rest still to come. Now, where do we read that in the story? I mean, this is no promise of future rest. In fact, the rest actually came to God's people. After wandering around in the desert for 40 years, Joshua led them into the promised land. They got the rest God had promised. End of story. Why are you making a big deal of this? There's a rest yet to come. Let me tell you the writer's response to that objection, and you'll find it in verse 6 and following. So drop down to verse 6. Now, usually I like to read a few verses and then explain this is what they mean. But in this particular case, uh, they're, 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 they're so difficult to understand, I'm going to explain ahead of time. And then I'm going to read the verses to you. So in verses 6 and following, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, so what you think is that this, this promise for rest has been fulfilled because Joshua led the people into the promised land? End of story? Well, why is it then that hundreds of years later, almost 500 years later, King David writes a psalm, and in the psalm he says, people don't harden your hearts like those folks did back in Moses' day and refused to enter the promised land. There is still a rest to be entered, David said. Well, why is David speaking as if there's some bigger rest to be entered 500 years later after Joshua led the people into the promised land. There's got to be something more going on here. So now let me read verse 6 and following. So therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So if Joshua had given them rest, then God would not have spoken later about another day. So there, there must remain then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now I hope you're following this. You know, the writer says, yes, Joshua led the people into the promised land. Yes, they experienced rest to a limited degree, but there's still a part of the fulfillment of that promise to come. The promised land story points to a future rest, points to an eternal rest, points, listen, it points to a rest that people today still must decide, am I going to go in and enter that rest? Or am I going to be like one of those rebellious people in Old Testament times who refuse to enter the promised land? Okay, we've been focusing on the future, the not yet side of God's rest. We've been talking about an eternal rest to come, but there's also an already side to this rest. 
we can begin to experience this rest right now. Go back to Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to look at verse 3, the opening line. The writer says, now, we who have believed enter that rest. The word enter there is in the present tense. A little grammar lesson here. Okay, it's not in the future tense. The writer doesn't say, and so we who have believed someday will enter that rest. No, he says we've entered that rest. We've now entered that rest. There's an already element to that rest. So how, how do you enter that rest? He says we who have believed enter that rest. Believe what? Well, he doesn't say in verse 3. In fact, he doesn't tell us in the immediate context of the verses we're studying today. But, but we know that the theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of who? Okay, you're getting weak again. It's the supremacy of Jesus. So if you want to enter the rest, you better believe what? Jesus. And just to show you that even though Jesus isn't mentioned by name in this passage, he's very much part of the writer of Hebrews' thinking. He's telling us this Old Testament story about uh, the people of God being led into the promised land by a dude named who? Who led them into the promised land? Joshua. We just saw that in verse 8. Now, if you're reading this in the original Greek language and you come across Joshua, you'll see that the name is Iesus. Say Iesus with me. Iesus. What do you think Jesus' name is in the Greek New Testament? Iesus. Yeah. Joshua is Jesus. Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Just as Joshua led God's Old Testament people into the promised land, so Jesus leads people into eternal rest. And when you surrender your life, when you believe in Jesus, when you entrust yourself to Jesus, you begin to experience a taste of that rest to come. You know, that's why Jesus himself, he puts it this way in Matthew chapter 11, one of my favorite portions of scripture. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus promises people rest today. It's an already rest. It's a taste of the rest yet to come. You know, what, what is it a rest from? It's a rest from trying to earn our own salvation. You know, if you've been working hard trying to earn God's good favor, trying to earn your way into heaven, I got good news for you. Give it up. It's been purchased for you by Christ who offers it to you as a gift. Rest. Rest. It's a rest from the guilt of our sin. You know, just, just this week, we all did things that we'd be embarrassed if other people knew we'd done. We thought, we said. And Jesus brings a rest from the guilt of our sin. He, he brings rest from the controlling power of our sin. Those hard-to-break habits, Jesus enables us, empowers us to break. Jesus is rest from worry and anxiety and fear because you come to know the one who is the sovereign king in control of everything. Jesus brings rest from the crazy pursuit of things that we think would satisfy us. Jesus says, no, I'll satisfy you. 
Jesus brings rest from resentment and bitterness toward other people. He gives us a love to love unlovely people. See, Jesus is rest assured. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have this rest. If you you don't have Jesus, you have neither the already rest nor the not yet future rest that God offers. Just a footnote to this point. Remember, the author of Hebrews doesn't write in an analytical, linear sort of way. He meanders around. He throws in stray points that seem to come out of left field. I want to share one of those stray points with you. We've been in in verse 3. Looking at the first line, that we who have believed enter that rest. Drop down to the last line of verse 3. This is in the same verse. Very same verse. He says, and yet his, God's works, have been finished since the creation of the world. Verse 4, for somewhere he, God, has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Now, if you're like me, you're reading this passage and you're saying... How in the world does this reference of God resting on the seventh day after creating the heavens and the earth, how does this fit into the passage as a whole? I mean, this looks like one of those stray pieces of spaghetti. Some Bible scholars say, well, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, he's just reminding us that rest originates with God. Back at the beginning of time, after creating the heavens and the earth, God rested on the seventh day. And so now if you want to enter rest, you you join God in his rest. He's the source of it. But but I think that this reference here in verse 3 to God's resting on the seventh day is also an allusion to the fourth commandment. Because the Jewish readers of the book of Hebrews would have known the Ten Commandments inside out. And the fourth commandment says that that one day a week, we're to set aside that day to rest from our labors, from our work, just like God rested after creating the heavens and the earth. And this day is to be a day holy to the Lord. It's to be a day where we worship God. Friends, this is such an important commandment for Christ followers today. If we want to truly experience, listen, if we we want to savor the soul-satisfying rest that Jesus promises to give our lives today, this is a commandment we've got to heed. When we work seven days a week without rest, when, when we skip Sabbath worship, as we're doing right now, so that we can have time to shop or attend kids' functions, have family fun, do, do, do whatever. We miss out on the rest that comes from reconnecting with Jesus because he's rest. That's where we find. What we're doing right now is we're resting. We are exhaling all the crud in our lives as we come to worship, as we come to sit under the teaching of God's word, and we're breathing in Jesus. We're reminding ourselves where our rest comes from. You you head into the week without a Sabbath rest, without Sabbath worship. And then you wonder, why do things feel so hectic? I've spent a lot of time talking about the already not yet aspect of God's promised rest. You know, it's a not yet rest in the future 
an eternal kingdom that, that we can enter through faith in Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, it's an already rest that we begin to experience. But there are two other aspects of this rest covered in Hebrews 4, and these won't require us quite as much time to explain. So number two, second characteristic of this rest, it's entered through faith. Now we've already parked on the opening of verse 3. Those who have believed if you have your own Bible, this is where you, you do some highlighting. Circle the word believed. Those who have believed enter that rest. God's rest is entered through faith. Now look, look at the previous verse, verse 2, because he says the same thing. He says, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share, what? The faith of those who obeyed. You know, you go back to the Old Testament promised land story for a moment. You know, why didn't the people enter the promised land first time around? Because, the writer of Hebrews says, they didn't share the faith, the faith of the two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who said, yeah, the Canaanites are huge, their cities are formidable, but God says he's going to give us the land, so let's take it. Let's take it by faith. You know, the people didn't believe God's promise. You know what I find remarkable about their lack of faith? They had already seen God do some pretty spectacular things. I mean, they, they had plenty of reason to have faith in God. Not too long before this, they had been slaves in Egypt. Remember how God springs them loose? Pharaoh, the mightiest ruler on the planet at the time, doesn't want to let him go. So God's got to convince him that it, it's in his best interest to let the people go. And so God sends plague after plague, 10 plagues total. The people saw God do amazing things until he broke Pharaoh, brought Pharaoh to his knees, and he said, okay, get out of here. And then they left, and they headed toward the promised land, and they came to the Red Sea, and this body of water is in front of them, and they're wondering, how do we get around this? And just then they hear the noise of chariots, and they look up, and Pharaoh's army's bearing down on them. They've been sent to retrieve the people. And so they cry out to God, and what does God do? He splits the sea in two. He leads them across on dry land. He covers Pharaoh's army with a tsunami of Red Sea. I mean, they, they had plenty of reason to trust God. They had plenty of reason to believe that God would give them the promised land. If they would just step out in faith and enter it, it would be theirs. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 2 that, We've been referring to that we too have had good news proclaimed to us. Now, it's, it's not the good news of the promised land. It's the good news of God's rest, his already not yet rest. We can have a relationship with Jesus today. We can have a relationship with Jesus that leads to a future residence in God's eternal kingdom. But we've got to step out in faith. You know, we've got to take God at his word. We've got to say yes to this offer. We've got to surrender our lives to Jesus. The, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith. Paul says, this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, so no one can boast. You can't earn your salvation. We're saved through faith. We're, we're saved through faith in Jesus. 
Now, granted, faith is a robust word in the New Testament. Faith means more than just believing a few facts about Jesus in our head. Faith means entrusting ourselves fully to Jesus. That's what it means to put your faith in someone, which is why I like to use the word surrender when I'm talking about faith, giving yourself completely to him. Have you surrendered your life to Christ, I ask? Now, the writer of Hebrews warns us repeatedly in today's passage, not to put off this decision. And go back to the opening verse, verse 1. He says, therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest still stands, now listen, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, God offers rest, don't miss it. In fact, his warning is even stronger in the original Greek language than it is in our English version here. Be careful is actually a translation of the Greek word fear. The writer of Hebrews says fear. Here's something to fear. Fear that you miss God's rest. Don't let that happen to you. You know, which is why he continues to warn throughout this passage. Drop down to verse 7. He quotes King David saying, Hey, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. If God's speaking to you saying, Enter my rest, surrender to Christ, don't harden your hearts to his voice. Then you go down to verse 11, opening line. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. You know, this is something you got to be sure that you've done. I love a story that's told about D.L. Moody. Uh, Moody was a famous preacher back in the 19th century. And on one occasion, back in 1871, he was preaching in Chicago. Now, Moody was a very simple preacher. His messages all revolved around what we call the gospel. The gospel means good news. Of course, the good news starts out with bad news. The bad news is we're all sinners who are separated from a holy God. See, we've gone our own way instead of God's way. And because of that, we've, we've separated, we've disconnected from the one who is the giver, the source of life. And when you separate, when you disconnect from the giver of life, you die, which is why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's bad news, eternal death, eternal separation from God. It's been our choice. But fortunately for us, the good news is God sends his son on a rescue mission. Jesus comes to planet Earth. He gives his life on a cross. He pays the penalty we deserve to pay for our sin. He dies the death we deserve to die. And because his sacrifice is of infinite worth being the eternal son of God, he's raised from the dead and now offers forgiveness and new life to everyone who will surrender to him. That's the good news of the gospel. Surrender to Christ, forgiveness, new life. This is the message Moody loved to preach. And on an evening back in 1871 in Chicago, this is the gospel that Moody preached. And he got to the end of his sermon and he looked at the clock and he realized the night had gone late. Now now typically, he would end each meeting by saying, and so if you want to surrender to Christ, here's what I invite you to do. We've got a room, a prayer room in the back of the auditorium. When we break up, if you'll just go back to the prayer room, someone will pray with you. You'll be able to surrender to Christ. But on this night, he, he looked at the clock and he said, it's kind of late. And so he said to the people, hey, if you want to surrender to Jesus, come back tomorrow night and we'll, we'll tell you how to do that. How many of you know what happened that night in 1871 in Chicago? 
Uh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern, started a barn on fire, and before the fire was put out, most of the city had been devastated. Moody didn't have a meeting the next night. There were no meetings for many nights to come. Many of those who were thinking about surrendering their lives to Jesus never did. And that's why Moody said, that will never happen again. Always, when I present the gospel, I'll say, say to people, today, today surrender to Christ. Today, here's how you do it. And we, we do that with regularity at Christ Community Church. I, I'm doing it right now. I'm saying to you, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never received Jesus as the Savior and the King of your life, you know, a real simple way to do that, at every one of our four campuses, there's a, a welcome center or a place where people gather afterwards. Go there because we have specially trained people who will pray with you. All you need to do is say, I want to surrender to Jesus. And they'll pray with you and you could make it happen today. You could enter God's rest. Eternal rest, the not yet rest to come, experienced today the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the already rest that Jesus gives. It's entered through faith. Don't miss it. One third and final aspect of this rest, it's not only entered by faith, it's confirmed by obedience. This is how you know you've got it. Okay, our main text for today is Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 11, but I want to back up for a moment. I want to read you two verses at the close of Hebrews chapter 3. So go back to the end of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. The writer says, And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now again, this is where it's helpful to bring your own Bible so you can mark it up. I want you to circle two words. Circle the word disobeyed in verse 18. And then circle the word unbelief in verse 19. And then draw a line between those two words. According to the writer of Hebrews, why did the people fail to enter the promised land in the Old Testament story? Was it their disobedience, verse 18? Or was it their unbelief, verse 19, that kept them out? The answer is yes, yes. It's both. It started with unbelief. They didn't trust. Listen, they didn't trust God when he promised to give them the land. And then in their unbelief, their unbelief led them to disobedience. Because they didn't trust God, they refused to do what God told them to do, which was to enter and take the land. Look at how the closing line of verse 2, chapter 4, drop, drop back into chapter 4, verse 2. It describes these people. It says they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. We've got it again. Faith and obedience. They always go hand in hand. You know, the Bible teaches that if we trust God, we'll obey God. If we trust God, we'll obey God. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this close connection between faith and obedience. Let's talk about sex for a moment. I thought that would wake you up. Okay. We live in a sex-crazed culture. You know that. Uh, but one, one of the values constantly promoted by our culture is that a, a sexual relationship is to be had by any two consenting adults who want it. Doesn't, marriage doesn't matter. And, and so we see it in our movies, we see it in our TV programs, we uh, hear it in the music we listen to. 
You know, I just went to see the newest Rocky movie, Creed. Okay, cool movie, but, you know, in the middle of the movie, the hero of the story, this is not a spoiler alert, by the way, okay? I'm not going to spoil anything here, but the, the hero of the movie starts sleeping with his girlfriend. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking to myself as I look around a crowded theater, I'm sure that this doesn't disturb anybody in the place, but it disturbs Almighty God. Because God has said in his word, I've designed sex for a special purpose. It's the super glue in a marriage relationship. It's to be between one man and one woman in a permanent marriage commitment. See, you super glue two people together in sex outside of marriage and they get bonded and then they rip it apart. And then they get bonded and they rip it apart with somebody else and, they get, and it keeps going. It's so self-destructive. God says, trust me. I know what's best. I know what I designed. And so if you're tempted, if you're in a dating relationship and you're tempted to sleep with the person you're, you're, you're dating. This is not just a matter of obedience to refuse. It's a matter of trust. Okay, here's what's going to keep you from disobeying God in this regard. It's your faith in God. It's, it's your belief that God knows what's best for you, that God's ways are wisest. Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe it, then you're bound to disobey. Let me give you another example. Money. Talk about sex, talk about money. Okay, we, we've just wrapped up this $11 million financial campaign next, and we've been challenging you to be generous givers. Now, generous giving is a matter of obedience in the Bible. You've probably heard me say before, two-thirds of Jesus' parables are about what we do with our money and our possessions. So whenever somebody says to me, I don't like it when you talk about money at church, I say, well, take it up with Jesus, okay? Because <laughs> he talked about money a whole lot more than I do. But, but, but let me tell you something about obedience with respect to giving. You, you won't obey unless you trust God. See, your, your obedience is going to come out of faith. If you got a little bit of money and you're looking at that money and you say, hey, if I give some of it away, I won't have enough to pay the bills. Friends, that's a matter of faith. What, what do you mean? You can't trust God to meet your needs? Like if you give some money away, God's, oh, God's not going to be able to pull this one off. Come on. It's a matter of trust. You say, what about the person with lots of money? It's still a matter of faith. To give money away when you could spend that money on what the world tells you will deeply satisfy you. If I keep that money and spend it on myself, I could get a car, I, I could get a condo someplace, a getaway, a ski vacation, a season tickets, things that will make me happy. Do you trust God that if you give away a huge chunk of money, God will make you even happier through your giving? See, at, at the end of the day, and we're, we're about to take an offering in a few minutes as we close the service here. At the end of the day, giving is not just about obedience, it's about faith. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? Faith and obedience, they always go hand in hand. Obedience confirms faith. In fact, let me say to you that whenever we see disobedience in our lives... Keep this in mind. Whenever you see disobedience, you can always tra trace it back to a lack of faith. What is it about God that we're not believing? You no, know, you just name a sin. 
you struggle with resenting somebody who's done you wrong, it's a matter of faith. Because yeah, if you believe that they've been, been able to mess you over and ruin your life, you're never going to forgive them. But if you believe God is sovereign and in control of that situation, then you're going to be able to obey God and forgive. So you name the issue, you name the sin, and you can trace it back to a lack of faith. What is it you're not believing about God? There's an old hymn, and as I recite the lyrics to the hymn, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out on the platform across four campuses. We don't sing this hymn much these days, but it's got some great lyrics. It's called Trust and Obey. The first verse goes like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And the chorus says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust and obey, faith and obedience. That's how we experience God's promised rest. If you've not yet surrendered your life, put your faith in Jesus. You don't know that rest yet. So the most important thing for you to do today is to take that step, to enter that rest. Don't harden your heart. As some of you are wondering, well, or what? Something like the Chicago fire is going to happen to me? No, maybe no tragedy will keep you from putting your faith in Jesus externally speaking, but you'll just get a hardness of heart. You know, the tug of God that you feel today, a week from now, you'll no longer feel a month from now, a year from now. You'll be cavalierly disinterested. So, so trust means putting your faith in Jesus, doing it today, surrendering to him today, and then obey. If you're missing out on the rest that Christ promises, that Christ promises, it may be due to some disobedience in your life, because if there's a pattern of disobedience, it will stir up uh, an unrest. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey.